film lovers, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and figure out why we love the medium so much. Today we're putting another entry into the diary of my film watching journey. We're going to be covering all of the films that I have watched and logged on Letterboxd from September 1st through September 16th. The reason we're doing 16th is because I got a special, more topical movie that I watched on the 16th, so we're stretching it just by one day, uh, but I think it'll be worth it. As always, if you like the show, please be sure to give it a rating and a comment and a subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media on Twitter at frankly underscore podcast and frankly, I love movies on Instagram and Facebook. And of course, you can follow me, Josh Wall, on Letterboxd at Big Walls 21 for all recent movie reviews. I hope everything is going well with you guys in your movie watching journey and, of course, your lives uh, in general. We're getting into the fall season here, so spooky season is starting to ramp up a little bit, but not immediately, not too soon. Um, got a few horror movies towards the end of this list, but not to start. Um, to start, uh, as you may remember, at the end of the last diary entry, I had uh, begun a rewatch of a lot of uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender films. I mentioned Gods of the Plague, The Merchant of uh, Four Seasons which I upped by half a star, by the way, on that last diary entry. I gave it four and a half stars. I bumped it up to a five. I really don't have, like, the complaint that I had about the pacing really doesn't bother my perception of it anymore. So um, I bumped that up. But I had four films of his in this diary entry that I watched, um, and I, I greatly enjoyed all of them. So to start off on September 1st, I watched The Marriage of Maria Braun uh, from 1979. This follows a woman named Maria Braun who gets married uh, during World War II and then has to deal with the fallout of that afterwards and tries to climb up the ranks of success and manipulation in her personal relationships. This movie is incredible. I remember watching it in class, like at least parts of it. I don't remember if I stayed for the whole thing. But I vividly remember the opening and the actual marriage itself and how that goes down and sets the scene for everything. But I really loved this movie. I think it's so epic. And I say that in a way of like how sprawling it is, how easily they move through time in the story. It's like an odyssey of a very interesting character, Maria Braun and how uh, your perception of her changes throughout from start, like when you're very much giving her a lot of sympathy and you care for her in the situation of where she's just trying to get her husband back and um, try and adapt to a new world uh, post-World War II, but then becomes something else entirely. And it is interesting to watch something like this and also know the context of the fact that Fassbender had a lot of criticism of some of his um, female or queer characters and how they were portrayed. Um, And I wouldn't call Maria Braun like a good person, but that's not really what I go to the movies to see personally. And I think that the character itself is incredibly uh, rich and and rich in terms of like it's a very well written character there's a lot for the actress 
uh, to latch on to. The actress, by the way, is a, is a someone who's appeared in in many Fassbender films. Her name is Hannah uh, Shagula, I believe. Shagula. Um, she's so good in this. She's an incredible actress. Her performance, like she carries the movie. And I don't say that as a way to diminish everyone else who's in the movie because everyone else is doing a good job. She's not pushing up this mediocre story with her performance. Like she is like elevates everyone else around her is like this effect that she has as an actress and just her character. And it's so interesting to watch it. It's very captivating. It's, it's a little long. I will say some fast films kind of overstay their welcome at points. Um, but I just loved the way this spra- sprawls all time and the way it ends is so satisfying. And there, you know, obviously is a lot of Douglas Sirk and melodrama in here that I really loved. And it was just really great to see the evolution of this character in this kind of odyssey way odyssey style of storytelling um so i i I think it's my second favorite fassbender under merchant of four seasons um i also think this one is pretty easy to get into honestly like it again it is very emotionally powerful it's not as you know devastating as the next film that we're going to talk about um but this one felt really modern in the way that um you know, the story unfolds and how it's just very sequential and moving totally forward and certain characters come and certain characters go. And it was honestly kind of refreshing to see that. And I could see a lot of modern American films that I don't necessarily take to, I wouldn't say necessarily take direct reference from this film or inspiration, but you see the formula. You can see how this style has stayed with us. Also, you know, shout out to Michael Ballhouse who shot this as one of the great cinematographers of this time, did a lot of movies with Fassbender, including um, Fox and his friends, which we'll talk about. And, uh, but he also worked with Martin Scorsese, shot Goodfellas. You know, he's, he's an incredible cinematographer who has just great use of color, the use of lighting and, um, you know, contrasting uh, saturated tone or warm tones and how saturated they are in this movie. Um, it's really, um, beautiful and I really love this movie. It's one that I've like thought about more and more, uh, after watching it. So yeah, if you haven't seen the marriage of Maria Braun, you can definitely watch it early in your Fassbender, um, exploration, I should say. It's very easy to follow and it's just a really well-told story. And again, the lead performance is just amazing. The way she looks, the way she uses her body, the way she uses you know, just her eyes. She's such a great visual actress. She's so good. Um, so I gave that movie four and a half stars. I gave it the like really, really fantastic movie. The next day on September 2nd, I watched Marta, which is a TV movie that Fassbender made in 1974. And what's funny is I remember leaving that Fassbender class thinking that this was my favorite that I had seen because it is the most at least it was at you know that time being like the most emotionally devastating and it is very devastating <laughs> it's about this woman um who is trying to gain some independence from her mother and ends up marrying uh a an incredibly sleazy sleazy is not even the right word it's like incredibly like evil man like who gaslights her and manipulates her and just breaks her down 
Um, and it's very tough to watch. I'm, I'm on the podcast that we recorded. I'm very much I mentioned that it's kind of like a Hanukkah movie because of how just dark and depressing and um, soul crushing it is. And so I can't really in good faith call it my favorite anymore because um, I don't want to return to it. It's still a phenomenal movie. Like I gave it four stars. But what kind of keeps it from five is that, like, I really don't want to watch it again, you know, because of just how bad it makes you feel, how gross you feel afterwards. And it's just like it hurts. It hurts to watch that movie. Um, But again, still great performances, a really interesting story. Um, You know, it just it just makes you feel gross at the end of it, which I think is all intentional on Fassbender's part. I think it's honestly kind of incredible that this was a TV movie to begin with. Um, and I was just kind of, you know, blown away by how much I've forgotten that happens in the story. And, you know, you're constantly rooting for Marta, the main character. You want her to get out of the situation that she's in and you're really trying to pull. But it seems like at every turn, you're just like kicked in the stomach. Ugh, it just... It's a movie that hurts to watch, but it's still so good. So that's why it's kind of a conflicting thing where it's like, it's really good, but I don't want to return to it. It's like Foxcatcher or Requiem for a Dream in that sense. Like, I just, you recognize that it's like an, an amazingly crafted film, but you just feel so bad watching it and feel even worse afterwards. Um, so I gave that four stars. I did not give it the like, um, but still, still fantastic. The next day, September 3rd, was uh, National Cinema Day, uh, so I celebrated with a little double feature. Uh, I started another uh, Fassbender film. I watched Fox and His Friends, or rewatched it, rather. This was another one that I vividly remember watching in the Fassbender class. Um, I remember walking away thinking, like, I didn't love it all that much, and uh, I thought the Fassbender, who plays Fox, he's the lead character in this, I thought his performance wasn't very good. Um, I thought the movie was a little too long. I remember the ending really well, and I remember really liking the ending. Um, but everything leading up to it, I thought was just kind of slow and not super interesting, and some things could have been cut. It basically is about a um, like a, a gay sideshow act named Fox. Uh, we start off like seeing him in this like kind of in this carnival. And he ends up winning the lottery and meeting a lot more like eccentric people and having relationships with um, people he meets and how they take advantage of him and how his life kind of crumbles after that. But this rewatch, I actually really liked it. I, I really liked it a lot. And I thought Fassbender's performance might be like my favorite part about it, honestly. I, th- I don't think there's anyone else who could play that role being so optimistic and hoping that he gets lucky and hoping that his situation turns and then when eventually it does he kind of just wants to live his life and then he doesn't really get to um to do that because of the 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 titular his friends you know who are you know taking away from him so much and keeping him from living the life that he actually wants to have and it is heartbreaking in that way but it's also like it's made in such a romantic way like uh, it focuses very heavily on the romantic relationships between everybody i mean it is a very uh queer centric story with every character basically um 
being a gay man. There's not many women in the movie other than I think his sister. Um, and this one caught a lot of criticism back in the day too, for being, um, for not painting these queer characters in a positive light. And again, much like Fassbender, these characters are not entirely redeemable. They're not great people. All of them are shitty people, but you have to find the empathy within them and realize that they are in a very shitty situation and you understand the choices that they make, even though you don't condone them, which I mean, I've talked about on the show before many times, but um, the Fox and his friends has a lot of uh, a lot of the quintessential Fassbender sadness within it because you care about Fox and you really like what Fassbender is doing with that performance. And so when he goes through his relationships and eventually, you know, ends up where he ends up, you can't help but feel sad for him. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a spoiler saying that all of these movies are tragic or sad in some way. It would be a spoiler if I just took you through it beat by beat, because that's really kind of how you have to experience these movies. I mean, you could say that about any movie, but with these, to really understand the scope of the tragedy and the um, sadness behind these stories and the way that they unfold, you do have to get it in one swoop. You have to watch all these movies just beginning to end straight through and you'll understand, you know, why it's so um, impactful because I, I say that because I think like if you watch something or like, you know, read the plot synopsis or like see a scene from it, you know, there's particularly a scene at the end of Fox and his friends that someone could watch and be like, Oh my God, that's kind of like either comical or not very serious or not fitting for, um, you know, the, what Fassbender is going for, you know, there's a scene in, uh, like in a, um, in a subway that, uh, that could be viewed as such, but it really isn't. And especially again, understanding the relationships and everyone who's in the film, it like hurts. You're just like, God damn it. I can't, ugh, fuck. But so it's very effective in that way. This one definitely though is a little long. It's a little over two hours. Um, it definitely, I think could have been shorter, and has a lot of scenes that oftentimes feel similar. A lot of people hanging out at parties. And it's fun to see the lifestyle that these people lead and, um, you know, understanding the world that they find themselves in. It's just at points you're like, okay, let's get to the next character moment. Where, how are we advancing forward kind of thing. But nonetheless, I, I was still very surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I gave it four stars. Great movie. Fox and his friends from 1975. All right, a break from Fassbender for a second. I said I did a double feature on National Cinema Day because I took my mom to the theater to go see Top Gun Maverick. Uh, you may remember on the first um, diary entry that I did, I did talk about Top Gun Maverick my first time watching it. And uh, this rewatch was, it was just as good as the first time. I kept the five stars. I kept the like. What made this special for me was that, like, I mean, I was, I was seeing it with my mom, which was always fun, but, like, it was National Cinema Day, so our Regal was doing, like, crazy deals on tickets, and our theater was packed. Like, it was, like, 80% full, like, 80 or 85% full, which was so great and always makes me happy to see our local theaters. I mean, I mean, yes, I say local as, like, in proximity. Obviously, Regal is not, like, a mom-and-pop shop kind of thing, but it's always, it always makes me happy to see the theaters getting good business, especially the state that Regal is in right now. 
but that made me really happy and it gave another like really good energy to the film it's a movie that you need to see on the big screen and with a lot of people you know we saw it on the biggest screen that we could at our theater and it was just a really lovely experience um you know to revisit it and this time around i really focused in on cruz's performance because it stood out to me as being way better than i remember it being um not that i thought it was bad the first time around but you're like the first time you're so engulfed with the spectacle and the aerial scenes and how fast the movie moves and it's very exciting but yeah this time around i really loved cruz's performance i you know because He's at the center of this movie. He, you know, is the one who really brought it to life. And, you know, is the real conductor behind everything. But he is like, he's not phoning it in. He actually does like a pretty damn good job. And, you know, like I've said before, with his performances, especially in his late later part of his career, like the post Jack Reacher, it's kind of the stone faced, quiet, badass guy. And that bled into Ethan Hunt, too, which is unfortunate. Um, but he has a lot of time to, you know, connect with people in this movie. And, and it was really fun to see. And he, you know, he brings it. He does a really good job. And it, it, it was way it was really great to rewatch it. So definitely go see Top Gun Maverick again. Um, just see it. You know, it, it, I'm so happy that it's still in movie theaters. It hasn't gone away. You know, it's been five months at this point four months excuse me uh, four months at this point in the theater which is fucking incredible it's 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 the movie of the year folks you know you need to you need to get out there and see it see it multiple times if you can uh because it is well worth it so five stars kept the like same as last time all right last fast bender uh, moment of this diary entry so this is the movie on uh, september 4th this is the movie that i recorded the actual episode about and uh it was Ali Fear Eats the Soul from 1974 another one that I vividly remember watching in the Fassbender class and I also remember really enjoying and this movie is about an uh, elderly woman who falls in love with a man from Morocco um in Germany and all about the community and how uh, around them and how they kind of turn against this relationship. Uh, it's a really beautiful movie. It's a, it's really great. I gave it four stars. I gave it the like, um, I vividly remember, like I said, watching this and enjoying it. You could tell the real influence of the melodrama cause that's all this movie is. Um, really interesting relationships. The most similar to all that heaven allows by Douglas Sirk. I think there's a lot of very direct references to that, including how the, the ending transpires, but this has some amazing shots. I think Michael Ballhaus also shot this. Um, but yeah, that that's what I took away the most out of this rewatch is the way that it looks, the way, you know, the use of like shooting through rooms and using door frames as like a centerpiece and the contrast in the lighting. It's so beautiful since like black and white is obviously like a very prominent theme in the film with it being, um, an interracial relationship and it led to a really uh, wonderful conversation i talked with an old film professor of mine from ithaca kathy crane about uh ali and it was really fun i mean we talked it, it goes off the rails a little bit just like a fast bender kind of gush fest and we're just going through all like so many of the films we talk about but we try and keep it as centered around ali as we could to make it like obviously a standalone episode 
and it was really wonderful to talk to her and she's incredibly insightful um and a big inspiration in terms of film criticism and yeah ollie is is great i think it's another um one to really easily get into because the story is easy to follow it's also a very painful movie to watch it's a a brutal love story um that really tests the limits of the characters but all in the uh well told allegorical story mold that fassbender has kind of been um made himself known for and it's a really great film uh, like i said four stars gave it the like it was great to revisit it um and a, and a perfect way to kind of cap this fassbender um fast binge if you will um matt simmons uh said that uh when I texted him that I was going to do this, he was like fast binge. I was like, damn, that's good. Um, but it was the perfect way to end it. And, uh, I'm very excited to get that episode out to you guys. And I, I hope that, you know, if you, if you have been interested in, um, these logs that I've been, uh, doing for fast bender, highly recommend going through his work and, uh, you know, check out the collection that they have on criterion and, I think it's fun to explore other possibilities in the world of film. So um, he's an important figure. He's an inspiration to me. So if you're interested, go check out his films. Okay, now a movie I think a lot of people have seen. <laughs> On September 6th, I was looking for something a bit more uh, modern, but I also kind of wanted a rewatch, something I hadn't seen in a very long time. So I went with the, um, Michael Clayton. I remember seeing this uh, in high school, I think going into my sophomore year, so like 2013, I think, 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. And I remember really liking it. I remember it being really complicated, uh, but I loved the performances. And I heard someone talking about this movie recently on a podcast. I can't remember what it was, but I was like, oh, damn, I haven't seen that movie in a really long time, and everyone really loves it. I want to go back and see if it holds up, and holy fuck fuck does it hold up this movie is amazing it's so good um it's really like is it Clooney's best maybe maybe his best performance um it's definitely Tom Wilkinson's best performance I don't think it's Tilda Swinton's best but it's definitely one of them I mean she won the Oscar for it and uh all three of them together it's it's a it's a match made in heaven but what makes them so good is the script. I think this is one of the best scripts of this century, maybe, by Tony Gilroy. It's just a... The dialogue has so much bite to it and rhythm and urgency. You always feel like there's like just impending doom around this situation. I mean, if you're not familiar, Michael Clayton, Michael Clayton is about a fixer, played by George Clooney, the titular character. Um who has to try and protect a friend and colleague after they have a meltdown in a deposition. And it gets into, you know, environmental politics and, um, you know, conspiracy and cover-ups. And it's, it's so interesting the way the story unravels. And it was way more fun this time because I could actually follow what was going on. And, you know, when I, when I was like 14 or, or 15 or whatever, when I watched it, the first time, you know, it, I, a lot of that more technical stuff um, or legal jargon was lost on me. But then I realized when I was watching, I was like, okay, it's it, a lot is being thrown at you. But again, it's it's so smartly written that you are able to feel like you can understand it as opposed to it just being completely dumbed down for you like an Adam McKay movie. Like the big short where they're just like, you probably don't understand this. 
here's Margot Robbie in the bathtub telling you all about it. And I fucking hate that. But this is smart and it makes the characters, you know, um, have enough context for what they're talking about and not feel like they're just relaying whatever information to the audience. They make it like part of the scene. And it's so well done. The pacing is phenomenal. The ending. Oh, my God. The ending This like the confrontation between uh, George Clooney and Tilda Swin at the end is just like, yes, it's so satisfying and so amazing. Um, just everything about this movie. I loved it. I loved it so, so much. It's from 2007. One of the best movie years ever. You understand why, you know. There will be blood and no country where the the standouts of that year. And I do think both of those films are better, but like if you haven't seen Michael Clayton in a while, honestly give it another chance. Or if you've never seen it, definitely check it out because it's a really good thriller. It's incredibly engaging. It's just ripe for good characters and dialogue. It's just, ah, I was just so happy at how good this was. I was like, okay, is it really that good? Let's I'm removing myself, you know, the, in the, the 15 years since this movie, came out let's just let's just go in just knowing that i liked it before and see what happens and it was just it exceeded my expectations greatly five stars total like i have no notes for this movie no complaints it is a masterpiece it's so 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 good two days later on august 8th i uh kept on the modern train and watched uh the royal tenenbaums Wes Anderson's 2001 uh, film. I think it was his follow-up to Bottle Rocket. It's one of his earlier films. I'm not. I can't remember the order um, specifically. This is about a family, the Tenenbaums, um, head by Royal, who is played by Gene Hackman, who all gather as like a family reunion um, when Hackman tells them that he's dying, and so we get like this like sense of. Um, or we get this whole scope of the family and their dynamic. And I was excited because like, there's a lot of earlier Wes Anderson films that I'm not super familiar with. Like I hadn't seen this. I haven't seen bottle rocket. I haven't seen Rushmore. I haven't seen Steve, um, Steve Zissou, but I, 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 I've always liked Wes Anderson. So I I was excited to go into this and a lot of people really love this one and thinks it think it's his best. I was honestly a little disappointed in this movie. I think it could be, there's a couple of reasons as to why, you know, I think I think the performances overall are very good. Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, th- that was definitely the standout for me, like the performances. I really liked Gwyneth Paltrow. I really liked Owen Wilson. Gene Hackman is obviously great. Um, he has a good, you know, kind of back and forth rapport with Angelica Houston. I just didn't really get emotionally connected to anything. They um, They do a good job of making each character feel like they're in a family like you definitely feel like these characters are siblings and have a lot of history with each other so you get that sense and there's obviously a lot more complicated backstory between them as parents and just their family in general it's a very layered story it's it's well written um i just didn't really connect with a lot of the heavier emotional beats you know i i felt like i was just kind of going through a wes anderson world which i enjoy you know i love moonrise kingdom i love grand budapest But at times, I think it can just get into, you know, the style and feeling kind of emotionally empty at points. Um, And it's just it felt like more just quirky than um, emotionally true. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but it didn't 
feel it didn't impact me really all that much, unfortunately. And I, I don't mean that as a as a blanket statement for all of Wes Anderson movies. I think the two that I did, Moonrise and uh, Grand Budapest, and even like you know Darjeeling Limited or Fantastic Mr. Fox um, and I, French Dispatch, like those movies have a lot of good emotion behind them. Um, and this one is definitely trying. I just think maybe for me, it didn't really do anything. And, uh, I think a couple of reasons, the main reasons I've been kind of thinking about have been like, maybe this is a better movie for when you're in some later stages of your life. I don't think like maybe like fifties or sixties, but like a little bit more of adult, you know, looking back on your family and have moved on with your life in some way to the next stage. Maybe that'll make it more rich. But I also think I've been so engulfed in older cinema and really loving, you know, the Fassbender stuff and even stuff from the 40s and the 50s. I've been really focused on going through that catalog, you know. And so going from that to Royal Tenenbaums can be very jarring, you know, very much like, oh, fuck. okay, this is what I'm watching. And I, I don't think it's like. At first, I was like, do I still like Wes Anderson? Am I, like, just tired of him? Because Wes Anderson, you know, is a can be a bit of a polarizing director. I think a lot of people like him when they're first starting off in their film appreciation journey. You know, he's big in, in film school. He's big in high schools. And that's great. I mean, he should be. He's, he's a genius. He's a wonderful filmmaker. But watching this, I was like, do I still like him? Like, <laughs> what? And not to say, I don't want to sound like I didn't like anything in this movie. Like I said, the performances are all very fun. Everyone is very committed. I really like Ben Stiller. I loved Gwyneth Paltrow. This was a great Gwyneth Paltrow performance. Um, and everyone's relationship with each other are very interesting. But yeah, I just, I, my, my heart wasn't really in this one. Maybe I need to watch more of his movies just to be like, okay, it's not, it's not Wes. It may just have been me of the jarring switch between era of film so I could be overthinking it. I don't know. I mean, I really loved the French Dispatch from last year. So maybe time will tell on this one. But um, for now, I gave it three stars. I didn't give it the like. As always, I'm glad to have crossed it off the list. But um, it's unfortunate I didn't like it more. Two days later, on September 10th, I had the house to myself because my uh, family was out of town on various engagements that they were at, and I didn't have anything going on, so I was on dog duty. So I had the house myself, and uh, I wanted to watch something a bit more, a bit more contemporary, but like again, a rewatch. You know, I'd done an edible earlier in the day, and an, and a, a rewatch is perfect for that scenario. So I saw that The World's End was on HBO, and I hadn't seen this again since high school when I watched like the Cornetto trilogy, or at least Hot Fuzz, for the first time. And, you know, this is Edgar Wright's 2013 uh, final film in the Cornetto trilogy, all about a group of friends who get together again after years of being apart to attempt the Golden Mile, which is a um, uh, a beer crawl, 12 bars, and it ends at the world's end. And uh, then crazy shit kind of goes down as they're doing this. And this movie's great. It's a really lovely time. Uh, I, I remember parts of it, but not a lot about it. Um, otherwise, I remember... <laughs> the one thing that I that actually stuck with me the most after that first watch was the um, the saying "Let's boo boo" that Simon Pegg says a couple times throughout the film, uh, and I've said that a few times in my uh, you know, just correspondence with my friends at times. 
But this movie's so much fun. It's so funny. I love Edgar Wright's style. It, that doesn't go stale for me. Incredibly fast pace, but also smart in the writing. And, you know, this one kind of recontextualized the rest of the trilogy for me of things that Edgar Wright is interested in. You know, um, this kind of Arrested Development style of character, not like in the style of the show. I mean, like characters who have a form of Arrested Development, like men children, you know, a man child um, and people not able to move on and uh, who get stuck in the past um, and want to relive that. That That's kind of a, you know, uh, a theme in a lot of his a lot of his movies. And, um, you know, crazy action, awesome fight sequences, towns that have, you know, secrets that the rest of the group has to kind of blend into. You know, that is a, um, a prominent theme in a lot of the uh, Cornetto trilogy. And I don't say that as like a, every movie feels stale. Every movie still feels like its own thing. Um, but this one, I think, is like really underrated. I don't think a lot of people talk about this one in the same way they do Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. Um, and those movies definitely grabbed the zeitgeist like pretty instantly. I, I wanted to watch Sean's Shaun of the Dead because I haven't seen that since I was like 10 years old or something like that. So I definitely know there's a lot of pieces of it that I don't remember fully. But maybe this Halloween I'll find it and I'll, I'll rewatch it. But but this was still a perfect rewatch. It was so much fun. I gave it four stars. I gave it the like. Um, it's just a really it's honestly like a lovely movie. Like it's it's got a lot of heart. All of the the emotions in it are justified and you understand the backstory. I relate to um, a lot of the characters a lot. Um, there's a lot of really funny lines that stood out to me and timing. And it's just, it's it's fun to be back in the world of Edgar Wright, honestly, when he made, you know, good movies. Uh, I can't speak for the Sparks documentary. I haven't seen that. But I I did not like Last Night in Soho very much. Um, but all of his other films, you know, I love. And uh, so it, I think people just unfairly brush this one aside as being the worst in the trilogy. I don't know if I don't know if it's the worst in the trilogy. Um, it's kind of tough to say one of them is like the worst because none of them are bad. I would need to rewatch Shaun of the Dead again to understand like what my full ranking would be. I love Hot Fuzz. I've seen that movie several times. It's still probably my favorite Edgar Wright movie. Um, the one thing I will say that like kind of um, put me off a little bit is that, you know, this is the Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. They kind of switch their tropes nick frost usually plays the kind of man child stuck in um his youth and uh simon Pegg is the very headstrong pragmatic mature one it's it's like the uh that's what their dynamic is in uh in hot fuzz but it's completely the opposite in this and i totally buy Simon Pegg as the man child in this movie. I think he does such a great job with it and has a lot of emotion um, and pain. And Nick Frost, for the most part, was doing a pretty good job of being the headstrong, more serious guy. I was liking it for like the first half of the movie. But then when shit starts to go down, he gets like really intense and he's like really going for it. And that to me, I was like, all right, relax a little bit. Um so that was kind of off-putting. Um, he's still great. Don't don't get me wrong. He's he's still very good. But yeah, his his performance, I was like, okay, just ease up a little bit. <laughs> um, the only other complaint that I would have about the world's end is some of the CGI just really doesn't hold up. Uh, almost ten years later, because some of it is some of the fight choreography is like there's a lot of people and uh, you know 
it can be kind of um kind of violent at points but not in the uh like the bloody sense of the word but some of the cgi are like oh okay i woof (laughs) you know but like those moments are few and far between you're still able to get wrapped up in the story and the uh um the characters all of the um edgar wright favorites are still here like martin freeman and patty considine and uh eddie marzen rosamund pike is in this movie pierce brosnan it's got a great cast and everyone works really well together it's just a it's just a really fun time it was great to revisit it on september 12th i went back in time to 1945 to watch brief encounter the David Lean film, uh, the first film to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes, although like it was you know during that year where they gave uh, multiple films the Palme d'Or, but still within the first batch of winning the award. This movie is about two strangers who meet each other in uh, in a train station and begin uh, who fall in love with each other despite you know both being married and having their own lives. It's a it's a very short movie. It's like an hour and twenty five minutes, something like that. And it's beautiful. It's a really wonderful love story. Um, the two main performances of the of the two people who fall in love in this brief encounter, if you will, are really wonderful. You can totally see their chemistry and you understand why they are in the situation that they're in. It's not as simple as just saying like, oh, they're cheating on their, uh, their significant others, which I mean, yes, technically they are, but you understand their situation, you understand like what brings them to this place, what makes them feel the things that they're feeling. And it's it's a really interesting movie. I really liked it. I think though the one thing that really holds it back for me and at points kept me from being totally emotionally accepting of what was happening is the fact that there's a lot of voiceover in the film. And I, I usually don't like voiceover, but if it's used well then, you know, a, a movie can win me over. And it starts off using it in a very interesting way. When you first hear it within the first five minutes, it's just the, um, you only hear the main character um, played by Celia Johnson. And Trevor Howard is her um, is her lover. But yeah, Celia Johnson plays Laura Jensen. Um, and... You hear it at first, and it is giving you a bit more of concrete insight into her psyche and her emotions, and it works. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is actually kind of an interesting use of voiceover. It's not just telling you what someone is doing. It's giving you a deeper insight into the character. Um, and But then it does become someone just recounting what happened. And it was just like, oh, I went here at this time, and then I was talking to this person. Oh, they're not doing this anymore, but they seem like they're doing okay. And then it became too much. Then I was like, all right, we, you can, you need to be very sparse with um, this voiceover because it's not helping um, if you're just telling me what you're showing me. And I know that's a pretty easy criticism to make, but it did affect my viewing of the film. Like it very much kept me from being uh, head over heels. Like I think without it, I would have just like been totally. just roped up in this movie as a whole. But uh, it was a very distracting use of voiceover, unfortunately. But nevertheless, you know, I'm not made of stone. It was still a really wonderful love story that I very much enjoyed. I'm glad I watched it. It's a good runtime, so, like, it's doesn't, um, it doesn't overstay its welcome, and the voiceover doesn't, like, really keep you from enjoying it for longer. Some very impressive sequences from David Lean. 
um, photography-wise and the way the story unfolds and ends up uh, concluding is really beautiful. And so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I gave it four stars. I didn't give it the like for all of the reasons that I just said. Maybe I'll like it better later in life, but for now, it's a very good film. Two more films to talk about. On September 15th, I decided to just run headfirst into the spooky season wall, and I rewatched Hereditary, Ari Aster's 2018 horror masterpiece, all about a family grieving while crazy, unexplained things are happening to them. I haven't seen this movie since I saw it in theaters back in 2018 when I thought it was the scariest movie I'd ever seen because it had um, scares in it that I never thought were possible that I hadn't seen on film before. Someone creepily standing in the shadows at a distance coming towards you in a way. And that part of it definitely still fucks with you. Like I was watching, I was like, oh my God, someone's there. Jesus Christ. I hate that. Like it's it. That is what really scares me. And so I was, I was wondering, you know, going back into it, I was like, am I still, is this going to hold up? Is it still like, you know, the greatest thing ever? And is it the greatest thing ever? No. Um, I think it's a way better first watch than it is um, a rewatch. So I gave it, I gave it four stars as opposed to five, which is what I would have given it back in the day. Um, I still gave it the like, though, because even though it's not as um, impactful as it was the first time, it's still a masterfully directed movie. It still looks great. It knows what it wants to be. The story is really interesting. The performances, oh, all of the performances are great. Tony Collette, it's criminal that she wasn't nominated. Gabriel Byrne is really great. Like, everyone in this movie is fantastic. It's just one of those things where, like, when you first see it, like, the, the impacts of the disturbing imagery and the uh, tension in the story and just how off-putting and unsettling everything is hits you so much harder when you don't know it's coming, which I understand is, like, you know, the formula for a lot of horror movies, but when you know that these very deeply disturbing images, like, I remember pretty much all of the disturbing images that happen in this movie. So when they happened again, I was like, oh, okay, this is happening, and that's right. Um, and to not say there's not still some disturbing stuff in it, for sure, I'm not saying that, but it's not as impactful as the first time. Um, but I'm glad I, I returned to it, and I probably will return to it again in a few years. It's still a great movie, and it was it's a fun way to kick off the horror movie season. I'm definitely going to rewatch Midsommar um, at some point, because I uh, I also haven't seen that since theaters. And I remember leaving that movie thinking, like, interesting like I remember really liking it but I was very much like what is this movie trying to say like I was trying so hard to dig deeper into the meaning than I think uh some things about it just kind of passed my perception some people like that more than hereditary I always said I liked hereditary more I was also surprised at how easy the story is to follow in this movie because I remember because it is weird and it is very Again, it's very unsettling, and the story is bonkers, and it definitely is. But as the information was coming at you a second time, putting the pieces together, it's like, oh, okay, this is what this movie is saying from a from a plot standpoint. You could do a lot with the interpretation, but the plot itself, I was like, oh, okay, right, 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 right. But still a very entertaining movie. It is, um, it's very creepy, it's very successful, and just looks amazing. Incredible that this is Ari Aster's first movie. Um, I mean, he has another movie coming out very soon. I don't know if it's this year, but sometime soon called Disappointments Boulevard, which I'm very excited about with Joaquin Phoenix. 
And uh, this is a perfect way to kind of start the fall horror movie season. And I'm, I'm very excited. And it continues. Like I said, we're going, uh, you know, past the threshold that I usually do for these diary entries. Talk to you about a horror movie that's very topical right now that's in theaters called Barbarian. Um, I've been hearing a lot about this movie um, from the past, you know, like week or two when it first came out and it was like the number one movie at the box office and everyone was talking about it, you know, go in blind, don't read anything about it. The trailer doesn't give anything away. And I remember seeing the trailer before I saw Nope and the black phone, I think. And I was like, okay, kidnapping movie, random dark house, creepy thing. Like, I, eh, I don't know. And then people were like, no, it's something completely different. Don't look up anything. It's like actually scary. And I was like, okay. And I've just heard nothing but great things. And I was like, all right, I hope that we can live up to the hype. And God damn it, it does. This movie is amazing. It's so good. I was just like, if I fell head over heels in love with it instantly, you just, I don't want to spoil it because you, I don't want to give you any more information than you need, which is very little. And it's tough to not talk about this movie without spoiling it. So I won't do that. But the reason that I'm getting, I want to try and get this out early is because if, if you haven't seen it, please go see it. It is a very independent film that's directed by Zach Kreger, who's one of the creators of The Whitest Kids You Know, if you're familiar with that sketch show. And so it's cool to see him go from sketch comedy to horror, very much the Jordan Peele route. But this movie really plays with your expectations. You think it's one thing and then it's something else and then it's something else and then it's something else. And like, you just have no idea what is coming at you. It does such a great job in the first act of building tension and making you think you have some pieces figured out based on other past horror movies. And then a, a total cinematic horror movie curveball gets thrown your way. And it's so impressive. And the fact that this is a first feature and that everyone is talking about it and that it really rocked people's worlds in such a big way is inspiring. And not only that, but also like it looks really good. Like the way it's shot is very stylized and uh, it doesn't feel like a low budget first feature. It's acted really well. It's it's got the best use of Justin Long in a movie and uh, fucking forever. He's so good in it. And, uh, you know, everyone is great. And it's just such a successful movie that I, I can't. I cannot stop thinking about this movie and what it does and um, how people are responding to it. It just it's the most fun I've had in a movie since, you know, Top Gun. Honestly, I, I want more people to see it and more people need to see it because of how um, just hard it goes. Like it's it's very disturbing. It's it's very scary. It has some really successful I don't want to say jump scares because, you know, that um, I think messes with your expectation of how this movie is effective. But it is definitely scary. It is a fucked up movie, but that just goes so hard and was so great to watch. Um, and I, I want to see it again so bad. I'm just I'm, I cannot stop thinking about it. The more I think about it, the better it gets. So please, please. Go see Barbarian. I gave it four and a half stars. I gave it the like. It is a just, uh, it's a, it is a great, great movie. It's one of my favorites of the year. So please 
please go see it. You will not be disappointed. That's it, guys. That is it for the diary entry for the first half of September. Sorry if I'm getting this to you guys kind of late. I uh, had some uh, technical difficulties that I had to kind of work through, but we're back. We're good. Um, as I mentioned up top, be sure to uh, comment, like, and subscribe to your um, on your favorite podcast network if you like the show. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies on Instagram and Facebook, and at Frankly underscore podcast on Twitter. I will have the next diary entry, which is the second half of September, up for you guys very soon. And we're going to be having the new standalone episodes start coming out at the beginning of October. Very excited about that. The first one that I'm going to be releasing is going to be me talking with my buddy Tyler Harner, who you may remember from the Ice Storm episode, all about train spotting. So be on the lookout for that. It's a great episode. Recorded it quite a while ago, but I'm excited to finally get that one out to you guys. And thank you guys again for being patient with me and just enjoying the show. So until next time, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Movies.